What is up, everyone, and welcome into episode 20 of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike. My name is Mike Johnston from Mike'sLessons.com, and my co-host, who will be joining us shortly, is Mr. Mike Dawson, Managing Editor of Modern Drummer Magazine. In this week's episode, we are going to dive straight into education and talk about mine and Mike's personal favorite rudiments for application of the drum set. We're also going to do some shop talk and talk about hybrid setups, combining electronic and acoustic drums together. We'll do some gear review with the new Yamaha Stage Custom Birch Hybrid Kit, and as always, we'll give you our picks of the week. So let's get started. Episode 20, Mr. Dawson. 20 weeks. That's a, that's a well, 20 episodes, about 2,000 weeks <laughs> yeah, at, yeah. at the pace that we go. But that's quite the, uh, quite the accomplishment for our little podcast. Yeah, what was the first show about? Oh my goodness, I, I have no idea. I, I just I just remember listening to it once and being like, "Well, we'll probably be done in about five episodes." Yeah, that was sort of fun. Yeah, we're doing yeah, all right though. Terrible. Twenty in, that's pretty good. Yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy, and I'm happy that it's it's doing what we had attend, intended for in the beginning, which is just to make people feel a little bit more in the loop, get used to the lingo, get used to the the names in our industry. And uh, feel a little more included in this in this vast world of drumming because I think when you start playing the drums, you just think it's drum set and you've got your favorite drummer and that's all there is to this world. And then you start hearing all this vernacular, bearing edges and coded and clear and and yeah. then all these names that you're supposedly supposed to know who this guy is and uh, it can be a little daunting. And I, I know Modern Drummer Magazine really made me feel a little more in the loop when I was younger. And hopefully this podcast is doing the same. Yeah, and I think we should remind people they can they can contribute and they can uh, request topics. So if they go Absolutely. to the Modern Drummer Facebook page where we post the new episode, you can comment right below there, or you can email uh, mdinfo at moderndrummer.com. Uh, I don't know if you have an email address you'd like them to use as well. No, I don't ever want them to contact me. Yeah, that's uh, what I thought. No, so kidding. yeah, just just Modern Drummer's <laughs> Facebook. <laughs> I think I'm I think I'm the the most accessible drummer probably in the world. So you can contact me any way you want, but it is it is easier for us if you just keep it on Modern Drummer's page. That way, uh, Mike and I can email each other about it, and we will definitely get it you know into the podcast. So what's new with you, buddy? Uh, well, I mean, it's the week before Christmas, you know, and I got called. This is crazy. I have to serve jury duty for the next two weeks. Oh. In district court too, which, which I guess I don't know what district court is, but it's it's not it's not county court. It's more of like a federal court, I think. Oh, so who knows what stuff. I'm in for? Probably white collar crime, or who knows? <laughs> it's in Newark, New Jersey, so it's always fun to go down there. Oh man, two weeks. <laughs> yeah. Oh. yeah, I mean, I'm I'm banking that. Well, I know that they're. Well, I'm pretty sure they're not open on the tw- on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day or New Year's Eve. So that already okay. cuts out three of my ten days I'm supposed to serve. Wow. I'm hoping next week, like, I mean, no lawyers or judges want to be in court. So I'm hoping they just say, yeah, you know what? Let's just recess until after the new year. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? Fingers crossed. And they schedule it for NAM. Yeah, exactly. I even tried (laughs) to get it deferred. I I put in a request and I was like, I'd be willing to serve as, you know, do my duty as a, as a citizen in March. And they just denied. (laughs) (laughs) Denied. Game over. See you there. that's awesome. Well, I, I'm I'm sorry. Amber's had to do that a few times, but luckily I've never been called for jury duty. Yeah, um, this was my second time. I guess just being in New Jersey, there's a lot of a lot of juries need to be deliberated. I guess so, man. <laughs> I guess so. Well, we do have, you know, I mean, uh, I think everyone that that ever comes here thinks that we're only known for our prison for Folsom Prison because of old Johnny Cash. Right. But it's not a big deal here. Like I didn't know it was here until our first camp when other people pointed it out. So. Um, 
But yeah, hopefully I'll never have to serve on jury duty. But if I do, it'll it'll be it'll be my honor to serve. Well, they're probably listening now, so you're going to get your papers soon. Fantastic, <laughs> fantastic. Look forward to it. I look forward to it. Oh man, good stuff. Well, uh, so what are you doing for the holidays? Do you have like are you? What's your gigging situation like during the holidays? Is it shut down all the way till like midweek of January? No, uh, no. I mean, this weekend I've got three like my normal stuff here locally, and then I've got a New Year's gig. I usually don't take New Year's gigs, but one kind of fell in my lap that's pretty local, and, and it, it pays good enough. So this will be the first nice. time in probably five or six years that I've played New Year's Eve. Wow. Okay, cool, man. Yeah, I usually just try to stay away from it because it's I – mean, unless the money is just amazing, it's just a pain in the butt. And to yeah, be away chaos. from friends and family. That, you know, I had to right. turn down a few invites to parties and stuff. That's never cool, but – you know, got to work. Not a boy. I love it, man. I love it. Yeah. Well, I will. Uh, I will be here editing footage and. Uh, yeah. When are you when are you launching the new site? I'm hoping to have the beta version of it done by. Oh man, I'm hoping like first week of January, so that we can have some of our kind of longtime students start testing it out. Because I mean, really, you know, it's still Mike'sLessons.com at, at its core is just content delivery. We're we're teaching you how to play drums, but the way we're doing it this time is is very different. And so I need, I don't want to just assume it works in my head. I want my students to really try it out. A couple people that have been with me for a long time, and kind of reinvent their practice habits, reinvent their accountability to the website. And uh, so we'll probably start trying that out in the first week of January. And I'd, I'd like to have it completely launched, uh, you know, by the end of January by NAM, so that people can check it out and just see what's what's new about online education. So I'm just all I'm doing is going through every video I can and be like, oh wow, that was shot with a very old camera. I got to refilm that one. So right. I've reshot since the last time I talked to you, I've probably done about 60 videos, um, start to finish. Wow. And then what's also happening is now, um, there's a lot of things attached to the video that weren't there before. Um, we have a new like history section. So when you're watching the video, you can see the history of that groove and you can, you know, it's, it's a little more, it's almost like combining Wikipedia and Mike'sLessons.com together. Just so if you don't care at all and you just want to learn your groove, go for it. But there are people that want to learn it on a deeper level. There's guys that are teaching, girls that are teaching, and maybe they want to learn it on a deeper level. So there's kind of the Wikipedia side of it, the history and the information of the groove or the rudiment that I'm teaching. Um, there's also the interactive sheet music so that you can slow it down and speed it up. You can hear it and, and read it. All that, so there's just a lot more tech going into every single individual lesson. So, almost done with that, nice. and then uh, yeah. But as soon as it's ready, I'll let you guys know. Did you uh, have to redo all? I mean, are there anything left from your previous before you changed drum companies and similar companies? Did you redo all that stuff? Yeah, I've redone everything. So it's all it's all it's all been shot with the Canon C100s um, with the new you know uh, art series lenses. It's all Gretsch drums minor symbols, that kind of stuff. Um, and really it's what's really sad is my OCD. Even if I had the good camera and the good, uh, lenses and the new gear, if the walls are orange behind me, then uh, I got to redo it because <laughs> I, I have the walls are white now and it just, it, you know, so it, like pretty much it depends on this. If I'm wearing an obey t-shirt, 
I got to redo it. If my hair is in a faux hawk, I got to redo it. <laughs> if the walls are orange, I got to redo it. Those are my stipulations. I don't care how good the teaching was. It was not too long ago, unfortunately. And then if for any reason there's still a lip piercing, I definitely have to redo it. Whoa. If that's, yeah. Hey, dude. I was I was touring in the 90s, you know? You can't you can't open for a limp biscuit without a lip piercing. Come on, Mike. How did it feel to shove a needle to your lip? Oh, all three times it was great. Every time I had Christmas, I had to take it out for my mom so she didn't know. Then I'd go back on the road and pierce it again. So yeah, it's always it's always a pleasure, um, you know. And uh, but yeah, so uh, that's what I've been doing is just kind of revamping all of that stuff and then really, really fine tuning my own practice so that I could come up with a system where I could say, okay, this is not the only way to practice by any means, but what this is is a is something that works for me and I'm a very non-natural drummer. So that's been a really hard thing is how do I come up with a practice system that works for all levels and for multiple time allotments? So it's a system that works in as short as 20 minutes per day and still works just as good if you have four hours a day. And so I'll tell you guys more about that when it gets done. But pretty much what I've been doing is just finding guinea pigs to be like, hey, will you practice like this for a week and really keep insane notes on your progress and let me know if it worked better for you than the way you've been practicing in the past. Oh, Um, yeah, cool. Because I want to give my students the freedom to practice any way they want. But for the people that are a little more lost and are like, man, I just don't know if I'm wasting my time. I want to at least be able to say, okay, this is not the only way, and it's definitely not the best way, because I can't say that anything's the best, but I can say that this will work, and it is guaranteed to work, because it's worked for myself and a lot of other students. So we're doing that kind of stuff, um, and yeah, it's just kind of trying to understand how human beings learn anything a little bit better. Right, man. I mean, I'm always revamping my own practicing because now it's like I have five minute chunks or or maybe right. I have one evening a week where I can spend a good hour to kit and it's it's a whole different approach before it was I could practice all the time as much as I possibly wanted and right you know having a full-time gig it's like good luck finding I mean so I'm practicing at 7 30 in the morning which is a whole new thing oh wow like how, did, how do I just wake up and just start playing drums with yeah. no, no warm-up <laughs> no I mean maybe a cup of coffee and just right start playing so most of my uh, studio work is actually done before breakfast really which I've, I'm kind of it's it's frustrating because I know I'm not playing my best but then I feel like if I can play well at 7 30 then I can when I get to the gig I should feel pretty good <laughs> I'm gonna be all right <laughs> that's awesome man well yeah I think you know what I'm trying to do is Stop thinking in terms of you need to practice. I'm, the categories are changing for me. So instead of a category being the rudiments or being grooves or fills, which are our traditional drum categories, I'm trying to think, what if I wasn't dealing with drums, but just the instead of drumming being the topic, what if art was the topic? Mm. And then that creates larger categories. So now I'm starting to deal in categories of creative is a category. Non-creative is a category. So if I was to practice double strokes around the drum set for five minutes, that would be a five-minute non-creative exercise. There's no creativity happening whatsoever because I know exactly every single note that's going to come out of my hands, but I still need to improve at this thing, and it warms me up, and it's, it's, it's improving my precision, it's improving my timing, it's improving my sound, but there's no creativity. And then something like improvising around the drum set in eighth notes, that's pure creativity, yeah. and that's a whole different part of my brain. So I'm trying to put things in larger categories that gives 
all of my students with all of their different levels the freedom to practice whatever they want but with a system that they feel comfortable with and becomes a habit great man that's exciting so yeah we'll have to dig into it well then let's start digging into something close to that. Let's talk about a little bit of educational sauce. I want to talk about your favorite rudiment. Your, and I don't mean just your favorite rudiment on a pad, but something that you actually apply to the drum set. Now, you can have variations of it, but something where you're like, I took that from the pad, put it on the kit, and I'm still using it to this day. Do you have one, or do they all just kind of mix together for you? I mean, I would say probably the most, most useful rudiment for me has been the paradiddle, and it's, it's four inversions. Like almost every eighth note groove I I play has the ghost notes are creating some sort of paradiddle sticking. Okay. So that I mean mastering the the four variations of of a basic paradiddle has, has been absolutely crucial. Every time I play a a funk song or, or a lot of rock stuff, that's coming into play. And for fills, it's it's I definitely abuse a six stroke roll. Like abuse. Oh, it. nice. That's your jam. Yeah. I mean it's it's straight out of Motown. Like if if I if yeah. I can play a Motown fill every time, I will. Yeah. That's yeah, all yeah, I man. need. That's I mean that's isn't that really the only way to start a song? If you, you count in two clicks, play the Motown <laughs> fill with your six stroke roll, and then you're done, man. I mean <laughs> they just, sold millions of records off that intro fill. I feel exactly. like I can do it. <laughs> and when you do it, you feel kind of like, yeah, from this from here going forward, we're gonna be all right. I as long as I nail that one thing, we're good. Now when you say your four paradiddle variations, are you just shifting are you permutating the start of the paradiddle? So you have your paradiddle, you have your inverted paradiddle, and then your other two are just starting in the other two possible places? Yeah, exactly. Just okay. taking the sticking and, and shifting it back a 16th note each time. Yeah. Okay. So then you're getting the double might be on the inside two notes. It might be on the outer two notes. It could be the second two notes. Yeah. But I think of it all as just variations of a paradiddle. Yeah, I mean, the paradiddle never stops. It's just where you start it. Yeah, you know? and being able to like f- like improvise and flow between those four. Actually, I have a one of my warm-up exercises is to play just alternating paradiddles and then put an accent on the first note for like four times, put an yep. accent on the second, second note for fourth, third, and fourth. Yeah, man. So then you're working on all your different stroke types. You're working on the paradiddle. You know, and you're working on your ghosts because when you if you're going to accent the third and fourth separately instead of just as a double, you have to hit an accent then a ghost after it and then the right. next time around you have to hit a ghost and an accent you know with the same hand that's that's a that's a great skill to build up and then do all four of them in a, in a line so you do you know a right hand paradiddle with the accent on the first note a left hand paradiddle with the accent on the second note i just right did it, yeah hand. yeah <laughs> so you're basically right accenting three of the rights and then the last time you accent a left yep cycle back around yeah and that's a great thing for you, all of you guys out there if you want to work on an ostinato you know, say the samba foot ostinato, the tumbao from Cuba, the bio from from Brazil. Having something like what Mike just talked about to play over it. So you play paradiddles. The paradiddle never changes. We're not doing any variations. But you're in in beat one. You accent the downbeat of one, then the e of two, the and of three, and the uh of four, while always keeping the paradiddle sticking. What will happen is that becomes a puzzle that you have to solve and your brain gets fixated on that puzzle trying to solve it while your feet just keep looping this ostinato and that's ingraining that ostinato into your body forever. So it's it's a great way to keep your brain occupied so that you can practice something for say 45 minutes rather than three minutes and then having the ADD kick in. So Oh, cool. Yeah, man. So it's good stuff for you. Well, I think for me, the, you know, the, the rudiment that I use the most frequently would definitely be the paradiddle diddle. Um, I use it a lot as a groove. I use it a lot as a fill. And it's one of the few rudiments that I've spent the, the, the amount of time that you should spend on all of your rudiments. But I've spent the proper amount of time to really internalize that 
sticking pattern of right, left, right, right, left, left in almost every subdivision. So I can play, you know, I can flow in and out of time with it, playing it in its natural form as 16th note triplets or sexy tuplets. <laughs> uh, and then, but I can, you know, shift gears uh, into 32nd notes, you know, with a great flow. And then I can bring it down into 16th notes and have it go over the beat line, you know, yeah. um, and over the bar line. So, and, and like I said, I, I use it a lot as a fill, but I also use it a lot as a groove, um, you know, and then if you're, if you're comfortable with the one you talked about, the six stroke roll, those two just flow into each other so well. Yeah. I was going to ask, do you think of them differently? Cause I don't. Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, no, I mean, both have the same amount of singles and doubles. So yeah. really the paradiddle diddle is a, you know, or the, in, the six stroke roll is an inverted paradiddle diddle. I think really the only place that I try to change them up is, I guess, just the fact that, well, it depends on how you play your six stroke roll. If you play in the traditional way of two doubles followed by two singles at half the subdivision, that's one way. But I think when most people say six stroke roll, they're talking about the single bookending the two doubles, yep, right? Exactly. So that's that's kind of what has become our known six stroke roll. Where in the uh, you know the PAS approved rudiment chart, you're going to see it as uh, two doubles and two singles. But yeah, no, I think those are pretty interchangeable. So it's just, it's kind of the comfort you have with your single paradiddle. That's anything grouped into six. I have that same feeling. Nice. Yeah, man. So, and, it, and it's got a great flow to it. So I would just suggest you guys out there, take take some time. And when you're working on a rudiment, start messing around with it on the drum set. Easier said than done. And then also be okay with the fact that you might not find a really cool you know, blow your friends away application for the rudiment. That doesn't mean it's worthless. Like when people say, show me what you do with flam taps on the drum set. If I just rip flam taps around the kit, it's (laughs) not very cool at all. I have no cool application, but I might play a little kind of, you know, flutter with my bass drum followed by a left hand flam tap and that's it. So glitter. And that's all I use it for leading me into something else but that's still a flam tap so i had to have my flam taps down to even play that little conjunction of notes mm-hmm. so, yeah flam rudiments are like that's an uncharted territory for me i've, I've messed really? with them but i never really because it's really physically difficult to play those things on the kit it is yeah. so i tend to just just not go for them except for just big accents where you need like a flam or something sure but never yeah, really even, consciously said all right let me do flam accents on the drum set it just it <laughs> feels like you're you're playing a rudiment i haven't gotten to the point where it doesn't feel that way sometimes the swiss triplet can be cool but like flam yeah. accents is, it's such a difficult rudiment in itself to play it is and i mean i think one of the people if any of you guys really want to get into practical application of flam rudiments check out todd suckerman um because that dude when he plays he he uses the flam rudiments especially the alternating ones like uh, flam accents, the way they're supposed to be used, where he really opens up the drum set through the flam. And so, um, you know, he's one of those guys where every time I see him play like a solo, I go, yeah, you know what? I'm going to go work on my flam rudiments, Uh, especially flam accents um, and then uh, single flammed mills. Those are alternating. And then pataflaflas, those are alternating as well. By the way, speaking of rudiments, did you know that pata fla fla, like the pata is the singles and fla fla in because it's a French rudiment, those are the flams. So it's supposed to be single, single, flam, flam, and we messed the whole thing up. That makes perfect sense. Doesn't but it? I, I never thought about it. Yeah. 
Thomas Lang gave me like the kind of he's like you know that I've uh, studied rudiments at the Vatican right and I was like wait what (laughs) (laughs) and he gave me the whole yeah I think yeah he said they have a drum corps at the Vatican and they like they have like all the original information for all of the Swiss rudiments and the French rudiments from the 1800s and everything there what? Like they're the, the I, dude. I, I'm okay. There's a good chance I dreamt all of this, but I, <laughs> why would the why would Romans have Swiss rudiments in there? Dude, their I have land? no idea. <laughs> I'm just telling you, they're the protectors of the rudiments. <laughs> I call okay. BS on that. We are going to we are going to. I'm going to have uh, my good buddy Mike Dawson at Modern Drummer Magazine contact <laughs> Thomas Lang and ask about this. I'm pretty sure he told me something about this, but. I do know this when he was like he, we were talking about the pataflafla and he's like that's we like the American drum tradition reverse that it's supposed to be single single flam flam pata are the two singles and then fla fla are the two flams yeah that makes perfect sense yeah. gosh and I'm, why are we going so we play <laughs> fla pata fla I guess that fla, just doesn't pata, work fla, fla. <laughs> exactly you just you can't call it a fla pata fla <laughs> actually it's not a bad rudiment name Oh, goodness gracious. All right, let's get the hell out of here. Shop talk. <laughs> Shop talk. All right, buddy, hybrid setups. So give me your take on hybrid setups and kind of define what a hybrid setup is for kind of the modern drummer. Yeah, okay. So the reason that we're bringing it up is because we reviewed the uh, Yamaha Stage Custom Hybrid Kit, which I think the definition of that kit is, is perfect. But they also have a hybrid acoustic kit that's it's a hybrid shell that means it's a blend of woods. So there's a marketing confusion there. So the Yamaha hybrid series is means that the shell itself is actually made up of multiple species of wood. But a hybrid kit means you're combining electronics and acoustic drums together. You have a hybrid of technology. So that could be something as simple as a sample pad. Or it could be full-on drum triggers on everything, or it could be you know whatever whatever version of electronics meeting uh, acoustic drums. That would be a hybrid kit, and it's it's super common. I'm assuming a, a lot of people even listening are already doing this, but the kit that they created includes a sound module, a couple pads, a couple triggers, and a full-on acoustic drum kit. So, for today's definition, that is a hybrid kit. And we're going to review that kit later in the podcast for sure. Right. So now, do you play with a hybrid kit in some of your gigs? Because you've mentioned playing along the loops and stuff. Yeah, I do. I do a lot. In the past couple of years, it's really become like something I have to do all the time. Uh, even like there's a, I have an, an old Roland SPDS that I use that on tour, where I put it in the place of the rack tom. So my kit was my kit was really just a bass drum, snare drum, two snare drums, bass drum, one crash ride hi hat. And then the SPDS. And so in the SPDS, I was firing some like vocal loops that we would play over or some like just pads of sounds that we would play over. Not nothing metronomic, but just like a sound. For anyone out there that doesn't know what an SPDS is, that's Roland's multi-pad, right? Yeah, I had the old one, like okay. the first generation one. And how many how many pads do you have on there? Is it eight? Oh, man. Know? No, I think it's nine. Oh, nine. There's okay. six on the main and then there's three like bar pads on the top. Yep. And it has two trigger inputs. So I was running acoustic triggers on my bass drum and secondary snare drum. Okay. So for each song, because a lot of her music was like a blend of like kind of white stripes, kind of punk rock with really kind of electronic uh, textures. So every every song I changed the bass drum sound according to whatever she used on her on the record. And then the secondary snare drum had like hand claps that would layer over top of the, the piccolo sound. 
Okay. Or when I did rim clicks, it would just trigger the hand clap sound. So we were able to play a real-time, no-click track, improvise solo sections and stuff, but I still sounded like I was playing along to a drum machine. So that was like the extreme case of a hybrid setup for me. Most recently, I got a uh, Roland TM2. Have you seen that thing? No. It's like a small, it's like a $200 module that has, it has a, uh, Maybe a hundred built-in sounds, but you can load in your own sounds on a on a oh, cool. SD card, and it has two two stereo trigger inputs. So you could have up to four pads connected to it. Okay. Or you could have stereo triggers, like a like a snare drum trigger that triggers the rim and the head. So anyway, I got that, and I use that with um, a band that when we play small rooms and the PA system, we don't have time to really tune the PA system, so it doesn't feed back. I would just literally forgo the bass drum mic entirely. Put a trigger on the bass drum, and that way I can dial in a really nice, punchy, clean acoustic kick drum sound, and it's never going to feed back the, the PA. Because right. bass drum mics are, are really troublesome if you don't have time to really EQ the room and get rid of all that low hum. So that's been like a lifesaver for a few gigs recently. And what's that called again? I think it's called the TM2. Roland TM2. It's surprisingly yeah. affordable. I think it's like 200 bucks. Man, I, th- I mean, that that stuff, it's been needed. You know, we've needed kind of some, some more affordable ways to do things like that because a lot of times, just like what you said, the gig situation will require that it's it's just a drum set gig, but in this one song, they just need hand claps in the bridge. And it's right. like, oh, God. So I have to get, what, a $1,400 right. multi-pad to get right. hand claps? you got to be kidding me. And, and then it's like, oh, no, I can just get a trigger and then I think, wait, what is the trigger plug into? Yeah. A two thousand dollar brain. Like, yeah. I'm like, oh my god, this is insane. Yeah, the TM2 would be the perfect solution for that because it's got built in. It's got several hand claps already in it, so you wouldn't have to worry about you know, getting your own samples. You can just use, it has like all the basic rolling sounds that you would need. Sure, sure. It's a really nice piece. Yeah, I you know I signed um, with Yamaha Electronics uh, with their DTX division probably four or five years ago, and it wasn't really for me as an artist. It was more for our facility here. And so that we would have electric drum sets in the back rooms for the students to practice on. And, and then through that, you know, I started learning more about Yamaha's world. And they, they sent me a multi, uh, their, what they call their DTX Multi-12, very similar to what you have in the Roland yeah. thing. And, uh, and you were telling me, I think, that Zach uh, Danziger helped develop that. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, Definitely. So, you know, I started playing with that. And I think, I, and in Minelfest, I even played an entire song built out of, it's got 12 pads, and I had 12 15-second loops in there um, that created a song, and I had to build the song up. And, and it, So you can, you can make music all by yourself, which I think was Zach's original, you know, I mean, he does it all the time now. Yeah. So, but yeah, I think right now it's very important for the modern-day contemporary drummer to understand some sort of you know, software level, you need to know a little bit about logic and a little bit about reason. And you definitely need to be ready for the gig to require some synthetic samples and that you're able to say, okay, I can provide us with hand claps. I can provide us with whatever you need, you know, and that's just kind of where we're at right now. So I think I don't see, you know, I think for a while people were thinking that electronic drum sets were going to take over the world because they were so simple to just plug in, get the sounds, but drummers themselves never warmed up to that idea. And I just don't see that being the future, but I definitely see that, you know, the acoustic drum set will never go out of fashion ever. And then hybrid setups will be just kind of a very common thing where it's like, sure, I can trigger something if you need it. Yeah. I mean, it's, 
I tell you, it's super effective. This one, he's, a, he's like a modern country artist I play with. So it's mostly organic, natural, big drum sounds. Uh-huh. Uh, but there's a couple songs where he has, you know, we're, we're on, a, on the record I programmed some drum loops. So so when we play live, there's two songs in the set where I get to, basically, I'm basically playing the loop in real time. So I got a bass drum. I got the SBDS pad to the left of my kit. Okay. And I just play the bass drum and snare drum part with my with my left hand and the hi-hat with my right hand. I gotcha. So yeah, yeah. again, it's not a loop. I'm actually playing it in real time. But the just the texture change of going from the you know the loud big boomy acoustic drums to the super tight punchy electronic sounds, everybody comments on like that's like next level. It takes your production to the next level. Just those little things, and I, and I use it on two songs. But no, it makes it seem like you're professional. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Now that stuff is is really important. I mean, I'm I'm kind of obsessing right now on you know what would call be called the you know. Um, I'm trying to think the onboarding process of anything. So how do you get into anything? And pretty much like what I've been kind of obsessing over on a design level lately is just is the cover of the book. When everyone says don't judge a book by the cover, when it comes to product and innovation, is that the wrong idea? And I really do think that the cover of your book has to be stellar for people to enjoy the words on the inside Um, as far as onboarding them, getting them into the process. And I think... Even if you had the best written songs ever and your country artist could sing his or her butt off, if you don't have that kind of great veneer on the outside, it's just no one's going to buy into it in the first place to discover how deep everything is. And when you do things like that and you add in you know, a little bit of it where they're like, wow, that's the, that's the exact same sounds on the album, then people start to buy in and now maybe they're more – you know, ready to listen through the ballad instead of go get a drink. And so I think all of anything you can do to add another layer of professionalism to anything you do, I think is absolutely worthwhile. Yeah. And there's definitely a reason why most pop music has sampled drums on it, because that stuff hits through a PA system so much better than acoustic (laughs) drums. (laughs) Totally. You know, every time I go to that pad sound or when we layer in, sometimes I'll layer in electronic kick drum sounds. So it just makes the kick drum sound like bit larger than life every time right. we do that the, the leader looks at me and goes you know we should do more of that because it's just everyone in the room all of a sudden it just makes them want to dance i mean that stuff is just made to pump through loud pa systems right and the the quality of the pa can actually not be as good and it'll still work compared to drum set you know you have to have a great pa for the drum set to sound the way that we think a drum set should sound like at a concert yeah, yeah. you know when when you get there and you see like okay those are their mains they have no subs this is going to suck yeah you know um and but but you know like but it'll sound dope when i get to my pad you know <laughs> yeah. and start playing my loop so well very cool i think you know just you know for everyone out there take your time with this stuff research what's out there you know there's cheaper products like um uh, what's uh, the one that starts with the A that uh, GC owns? Um, GC owns uh, Simmons. They own Simmons, but I, I thought they owned the other one that starts with the A. Alesis. Um, Alesis, yeah. They don't own that? No, I don't think so. Okay. So, but, but you know, check out Simmons and Alesis, um, which make, you know, very affordable stuff, and they make good stuff as well. And then, you know, Roland and Yamaha. And then now, uh, what's the one that uh, Bob Terry's over at? The... Um, Infused, which is infused. That's a whole other conversation that I think at right. some point. I mean, I, they have. I haven't gotten my review set to check out yet, but um, it's it's. I think it needs to be clarified exactly what the heck that thing is. 
I agree. So we we can talk about that. Maybe we can do a little special and talk about Infuse, the Aquarian on-head design yeah. series, and, and the in-head design. And we can talk about all that and kind of really clear that stuff up for people. All right. So we're still talking about the January 2016 issue of Modern Drummer, which just happens to be the first of the 40th year. We haven't talked about that yet. This is our beginning of our 40th year celebration. Jeez Louise. I mean, we've kind of hinted at it before, but this is the first issue. We've gone back to the old logo. What do you think of the old logo coming back? Is that what's on the cover right now? Yeah, the Neil Peart issue. Yeah, man. It's pretty spicy. That's, I like it. That's the original, it looks... the original logo. Now, do you have any idea how that stuff was done back in the day? Because there wasn't, like, Photoshop, and there wasn't, like, you <laughs> know. I mean, did, did someone have to draw that? Yeah, I mean, we've... Uh, really, if you look at it, it's a weird logo because there's a mix of upper and lowercase lettering, which is oh, kind yeah. of like a just you just don't do that. Oh yeah, the E's are lowercase. Uh, yeah, the N is lowercase. Yeah, so I you know I should have I should have found out who was the original designer, but I think it was just a friend of Ron's or some some I'll find out. But wow. yeah, I mean back in the I, I mean I started here when definitely in the computer age, so I was never here for draft drafting tables, and they were literally cutting out. You know, text and putting it, gluing it onto forms, and I mean, it's That's crazy. Yeah, it's stuff that it. I mean, I can't. I can't imagine how they could put a magazine together back in 1980. Dude, that's <laughs> so cool. So that's how they would do this stuff. They actually yeah. cut out yeah. letters. Yeah, I mean, the first the first issue was all like cut out of paper and put onto a form and copied. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> there's got to be somebody in their 60s right now listening like these freaking idiots. I know. You guys are so spoiled. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I mean, it's true. Oh man, that's that's awesome. Awesome. Yeah, so anyway, this is our first of our 40th anniversary. So all year long we're going to be kind of bringing back some old cover artists and seeing where they're at and that kind of stuff. Cool. Very uh, cool. But one of the features in this issue is we had a uh, our former senior editor, Rick Van Horn, do a, a feature on 40 years of innovation. So he goes from basically from the late 70s up through now and talks about all the categories of you know, the landmark innovations, some that have stuck, some that, that died a miserable death. But right. we try to get some photos from, from each era that kind of show like the uh, the Octobonds that Stuart Copeland made famous. And we've yeah. got the Rototoms that Terry Bozio, I mean, he used a whole set of Rototoms at one point with missing persons. We've got the the weird uh, horn shaped drums that Billy Cobham used. Yeah, buddy. Which I do. I never had a chance to play those. I can't imagine what 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 the point was. No, <laughs> was, I, I did have weird. to play them once. And, you did. Uh, I did a fly gig, and uh, it was like some sort of festival. We were told we were on Ozfest, so we were very excited to fly in and play one date of Ozfest. We just didn't ask a lot of questions. We we're out on tour at the time, and we roll up. Uh, in we were in Kansas somewhere, and we roll up to this field that didn't look very big. There were some stages, but I was like, wow, there's probably at the most 500 people here. I thought OzFest was way bigger. And they were like, no, this is the Wizard of OzFest. It's in Kansas. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what? No way. <laughs> Dude, and I'm not kidding. Our whole band, like our faces just dropped, and we're like, the Wizard of OzFest? That's like, some weird, gotta, weird and stuff. And this is in the 90s, so this is when the OzFest and Lollapalooza was the biggest thing in the world. And so we were so bummed. Did you fire your and, booking agent? <laughs> Dude, you have no idea what the, the argument we got in with Hollywood Records over the Wizard of OzFest. Uh. And so any Anyways, Kansas doesn't have a huge, you know, they don't have like SIR. They don't have a huge rental program. And we were the right. last ones on the bill. So I got one of those Trixon. It, it wasn't Trixon, but it was the one that Billy Cobb was playing, like the North. full out horn. 
whatever it was, I was like, they pulled it out of the cases and I was like, that's, I'm not playing that. How did it feel? It felt horrible. It, it was the worst experience ever. First of all, on the very first note that I played, like to lead our band into our set, my throne dropped an entire foot and I was just <laughs> like, like the whole thing just kind of collapsed and I <laughs> I saw him like like a freaking chimpanzee trying to reach my cymbals and my drums, and like it was kneeing yourself in the face every time you hit the bass dude. Drum. I was such a whiner and a complainer at that time already, and then this made it so much worse. Like I I, I just wanted to cry. I was like I just want to go home. This is not meant for me. <laughs> but no, the drums and it was an outdoor gig. So the horn shaped drums, outdoor gig, Wizard of Oz fest. I teach drums for the rest of my life. That's yeah, it. Yeah. I'm done. I'm wow. done touring. Now you know why I quit my band. Well, so moving go. on to the innovations. <laughs> yeah, so some of the ones that, that actually stuck, like, did you know that Rogers was the first memory lock? They had the first memory lock? No. Yeah, they, they did that. And, and the rims mount, I mean, that was one man's invention. That's Gauger. His design's been kind of stolen by everybody. But By everyone. That's what I was going to ask you. Like, what do you think, out of all the innovations, from tom sizes to boom stands and double pedals and suspension mounts, what's the one innovation for you personally, where you're like, you know what? I think that actually moved our instrument forward, and I really, really am glad that came along. Oh man, I mean, with within my career as a drummer, or you mean just in totality? I, I'd say probably in totality. Yeah. Um, I mean, I never, I wasn't of the calfskin era, but I would have to say that the Mylar drumhead. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, but that's not the, my, the most fun for me. No, no, for sure. I mean, I kind of think the double pedal has probably changed the drum set more than anything else yeah and music i mean there's certain music you know that i can't imagine without a double pedal um, yeah people always ask since i play a single if i'm against double pedal and it's just i think double pedal is a situational thing not a crutch and there's situations where i can't imagine not having a double pedal for that musical situation it'd be like telling the guitar player you know tell dimebag daryl you know do not use distortion yeah you know um and it's like well that you know, then, then Pantera isn't Pantera. So, um, so I think, you know, same, same thing with double pedal. You know, if you think of playing, you know, Meshuga with single pedal, it's like, uh, it's just, it's not going to have what it needs. So I, I do think that, but yeah, when I think of innovations and if I think about putting myself in the old days, man, calfskin heads and yeah. cat gut snare wires, <laughs> right. that would have shut me down. And I mean, just the feel, I mean, what it must've felt like as a drummer to play on calfskin heads, must have been so different than the rebound and response we get out of you know mylar. They they sound amazing, but I mean the, just the weather response is what would scare me, and just yeah. the volume. I mean you can't really rock and roll would not have been invented on on calfskin head drums. It yeah. just wouldn't have been able to, to do what it did. So, I mean I I like the way they sound, but it's definitely of an era and of a period. You, you've got to be playing like like earthy singer songwriter music or jazz sure. or something. I I mean if you I think one loud rim shot on a calfskin head and it's done. It's game, it's game over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, another thing that was maybe not like completely game changing, but I remember the moment that it came into popular culture and that would be the the hybrid between sticks and brushes, so hot rods. I remember seeing Pearl Jam and Nirvana play, you know, MTV Unplugged and they had these new shish kebab you know yeah. skewers 
And it was such a game changer because I never really connected with the brushes and sometimes my sticks were too loud. And to know that there was this thing in between that would allow for rebound and I could play my double stroke rolls, but there was a, and it was a new tone. I mean, that was a huge deal to me. Yeah, you know what I was going to say to get dark about my least favorite innovation of the past the 40 Hot years? Hot rods. Hot rods. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, everybody, we don't agree just to agree. Sometimes it's real. Sometimes Mike, that's why I wanted to do this podcast with Mike in the very first place. Because when we would talk on the phone, he's like, I think that's a horrible idea. And I'm like, all right, thanks for being honest. I mean, I hate the way they sound. I hate it. <laughs> That's so awesome. <laughs> I think there's one – I mean the only track that I can recall where I'm like, yes, that's cool, was the Dave Matthews Band, uh, whatever the yeah. song is, where Carter does the ridiculous about. long roll for like 35 seconds <laughs> and he's using yeah. hot rods. Yeah. Like that was the one time in my life that I will use hot rods if I have to play that song. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> there's, there is – there's I actually – as sad as it is, I can only think of only one example too where I actually dig it. But, uh, but that would be – um, it's actually on Bobby McFerrin's album. Uh, man, I think it's his second or third one, but it's got Omar Hakim on it. I'll have to look up the track, but it's it's a pretty incredible display of texture with Hot Rods. But to me, Hot Rods weren't the invention that I was thinking of that really changed the game. It was more that what Hot Rods did for the industry so that everyone had to create all these new things other than sticks or brushes, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, Vader and Vic Firth and Promark, uh, Vader and Vic Firth probably together just have so many things, you know, the roots, the, uh, what do you call them? The, uh, the little monsters, the big monsters, yeah. you know, then all of a sudden at Modern Drummer Festival, Paul Wertico's up there playing with these tubes, right? You just know, plastic tubes, yeah. just plastic tubes. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think, I think the introduction of hot rods or the hybrid between sticks and brushes really kind of kickstarted a whole different aspect of the industry that the industry wasn't even thinking about you know so that and then you know and then uh, i have a quick question about one of the main innovations which is drum racks did you ever have a rack i did i had a pearl rack in high school um, so is that the square one or did yeah, you have the round I had the, okay the big old square looking thing <laughs> dennis chambers it weighed more than my cymbal stands so <laughs> The logic of it made – and I, I didn't use a huge setup. I probably had three crashes, a ride, and, and a hi-hat. But and a rack. In a rack, and I, and I had to fly my toms off it for whatever reason, even though the bass drum had a perfectly good mount on it. <laughs> fly. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's funny you say that because I was looking at this picture of Jeff Mercaro, and it looks like he's – like his drum set is, is inside an invisible piano. Like the rack is just so obtrusive. <laughs> Yeah, or it's like a up. like a velvet, you know, like do not enter this area kind of a he's quarantined. Oh yeah, totally. I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> oh man. So yeah, yeah I, I, I used it but it very rarely left my house. It was more just that way my kit was always set up and you know, I didn't have to worry about stands moving around. Right. Yeah. No, it was it was quite the hip thing for a while. I, I had a rack in my uh you know, before I started touring and my favorite part of every show was where me and four other bandmates lifted my rack up onto stage. Yeah. yeah. So people would be like, Oh, that drummer must be really good. With Look all your how- symbols on it and everything. Oh yeah. Yeah. You don't take anything <laughs> off. Toms were left on and everything ready to go, man. And then because I didn't have the square Pearl one, like you did, I had the Gibraltar one. By the time we got it up on stage, everything had slipped down, oh, yeah. you know, and just cause it, it never held tight. And so, uh, well, I'm glad to know that we both, Went through the rack phase, and that I was really supporting the the hot rod thing while you were barfing on your snare drum. That's that's really good to hear. 
Well, definitely, guys, check out that article. It's called Innovations. It's in the January issue of Modern Drummer. Now, let's get to some candy. It is gear review time, and we talked about how in gear review we are going to go back to uh, what Mike mentioned earlier, which is the Yamaha Stage Custom Birch Hybrid Kit. And like he mentioned earlier, this is not a hybrid shell. This is a hybrid between acoustic and electric drums. So did they, they send you this full package, like the full kit with the electronics and everything? Yeah, they did. That's how they were selling it. It's a, it's a five-piece kit. I believe it was 10, 12, 14 toms and a 22-inch bass drum. Um, and they were all – I mean, they were the regular stage custom birch kit, which, by the way, might get my choice for the the – best econ- uh, economical drum set on the market really I mean, so that that's probably in there with like is it above the like gretsch catalina or the thomas silver star or is it right around there i would say it's, it's the same but okay there are something about yamaha's like hardware because it's the same hardware on you know all the way up the line like the tom mount is the same it's it's the good stable simple easy to use hardware Oh wow! Um, that I really like, and I first played a stage custom in college. It was like a, the kit that was in the drum set teacher studio, and it sounded amazing. I mean, I, I couldn't believe how how good it sounded. I didn't realize it was like a mid level kit. Yeah, well, when, especially when you're younger too, you're you're not playing a Yamaha stage custom to you. You're playing a Yamaha. Exactly. You know, it's like oh, the, the Yamahas are good. It doesn't you don't know about lines yet. Yeah. Um, and know, and my friend had a Maple Maple custom kit. And yeah, man. I think the stage custom sounded as good, if not really? better. Yeah, I mean, it was it was just so similar. Like the thing with Yamaha to me is they're just consistent. They're across the board. Right. They're they're all pretty similar until you get up into the, like the recording custom. That's a whole different world. But sure, I think everything in the mid range and 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 like lower pro range, it's it's pretty consistent. So this, as far as just for the money, a stage custom Birch kit is is great if you can find one. Um, so it came with that. Um, with a matching snare and then for the electronics it came with their reduced module um, the tdx 502 so it's not the the mac daddy that comes with their uh their their top of the line electronic kit it's the more budget price one so there's fewer fewer sounds in it but still all good sounds that that you can use plug and play and just for yamaha purists it's dtx not tdx is that what i said yeah you went full roland on it I just know that somewhere Greg Crane, the rep at Yamaha, is like, DTX, it's not TDX. What does it even mean? I have digital technology. With an X? <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> anyway, so it's their like their lower level but still professional module. Um, it comes with one of the, like the, the silicone pads, and it comes yep. with one rubber pad uh, and two like, stick-on triggers. Okay. So really, out of the box, you could do exactly what I was saying with my country band, where you can trigger, you can layer in triggered sounds along with your acoustic bass drum sound. You can layer in triggered sounds along with your acoustic snare drum sound, or if you want to put that second trigger on anything, you could put it anywhere. Uh, you can go on any drum, or you could put it on the side of the shell and only have it trigger when you hit the rim. I mean, whatever you want to do. Then you could have maybe the rubber pad to, to control loops, start and stop loops. And you can maybe use a silicone pad since it's it has, uh, I think it has two trigger zones. You could use that for your hand claps, or maybe some tambourines, or maybe wow. a, a you know a a, a, a Roland. I was gonna say a Roland snare jump sound. Probably not a Roland snare jump sound. <laughs> but if but. if you had a cheap snare drum and you were like, man, I want a Yamaha Maple Custom Absolute snare sound, boom. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> out of the box, it's it was it was a, a great 
set up. It was super easy to install everything. Um, the I mean, the one thing you're you're not getting when you have a multi pad is to have all those like twelve zones at your disposal. Right. So it's it's limited in that regard. You can really only play one, two, three, four. I think five electronic sounds, which is probably enough for most. That's people. probably more than enough. I mean, unless you're trying to create melodies or something, that's. You know, usually you just need one to two samples per song, and then yeah. you just need to load a new batch, you know, for a different song. But, um, you know, I like when I've used hybrid setups and triggers in the past, it's been nice to be able to turn on and off the bass drum trigger for maybe the bridge. Like, okay, I'm going to put an 808 underneath my kick for the yeah. bridge, turn it off, um, you know, and like, you know, I think the hand claps or just a very synthetic, fake hip hop sounding snare drum might be a great thing to have um, layered in there. But, I mean, really, I think really what they've done, and most people, it would take a little bit of common sense to figure this out, but these are all products that Yamaha already offered. They're just packaging it so you don't have to go around and shop like a madman trying to figure out, okay, I need this cable to connect to this trigger, this trigger goes to this brain, and I have to special order all of these things. They've just taken all of the hassle out of it and put it in a nice, simple package for you, which I think is great. Yeah, and it's good that they use a cheaper acoustic kit so they're keeping the price within i mean if you can get all of this for the price of like a, a professional acoustic kit rather right. than it being like fifteen hundred dollars more because they're adding electronics if it would if it would have been a, a absolute maple or or whatever their higher end stuff right like i said these drums are nice i mean i didn't love the stock heads that came with those taiwanese made uh clear ambassadors right. i mean yeah. they sound okay but they're they're you can tell they're not top they're just papery yeah, so they're cutting some costs with that, but even still, I mean, you could a little bit of tape. You can get those toms that sound really nice. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, the first thing most people are going to do when they buy a new kit is replace the heads. And I, I think the drum industry has always had to fight that battle of, okay, we have a three thousand dollar drum set here, and we're going to put five dollar heads on it because we yeah. don't want to waste the money. But then in the showroom, that kit has five dollar heads, so no one will ever get to hear the true yeah. greatness of this three thousand dollar drum set. It's it's a weird battle, and as somebody that worked in retail for a long time before I started traveling and stuff, it used to drive me nuts because people would say, "Oh, Premier sucks," and I was like, "Whoa, slow down! <laughs> These heads are wrecked." You know, like this is a great drum set, or Thomas sucks. It's like, oh, hold on now. You know, and then if so, I mean, and it's even a thing for a drum shop to consider: should we put on decent? you know, quality heads on all of our new drum sets just so that people can hear what these drums really do. So did you, when you tested this, you know, that what we're going to hear right now, are we going to hear the mix of the two? Unfortunately, the audio was corrupt and I don't have any. Oh, wow. Yeah. So what I'm going to try to do is (laughs) just do a, uh, a a quick hybrid recording of my own set. Okay. So at least we can demo what, what a hybrid kit sounds like. All right, so what you're about to hear is the basic drum track for one of my band, Diane's songs, where I'm playing acoustic drums and also triggering loops and layering in triggered samples on my bass drum and snare drum. I also have a jingle wedge attached to my secondary snare drum, so whenever I play rim clicks on that, you get a little bit of that texture of a tambourine. So the song starts with a loop that I play from the pad. Here it is. So that's a loop. And then I'm going to enter with the acoustic kit playing rim clicks on the secondary snare. Here it comes. So that bass drum has a triggered sample layered on top of it. All right, now we're about to go to a second section. 
where I stopped those loops and I'm about to fire two more loops and play a full groove. Here we go. So you're hearing two loops and I'm playing the main groove over top of that with a triggered bass drum sound, a triggered snare drum sound in addition to the acoustic bass drum and, and acoustic snare drum sound. So I want to drop the samples out now so you just hear what the drums sound like. So that's straight acoustic drums, no loops, no triggers. Now I'm going to bring the loop back in. Now it goes to a, a breakdown section where I'm only playing samples on the multi-pad over top of the looped shaker sound. So this is all SPDS, no acoustic drums. Now we come back into the, the samples and the live drums. The hi-hats are actually 12-inch Zildjian A splash cymbals. And on the snare drum, I have one of the uh, big fat snare drum muffler ring on top, so it gives it a real tight sampled sound. So that's my hybrid kit. Okay, so pick of the week, uh, I'm going to start it, and I rediscovered one of my favorite video lesson series. Um, I hope it still exists on YouTube. I had saved it on my YouTube channel, and they're still there as of last night. So uh, it's the Ian Froman Vic Firth video series on contemporary jazz drumming. He, he did five short videos. I think that might be five minutes or so apiece. Okay. And it, I think it's the best most easy to understand uh, lesson on how to play contemporary style jazz. So in really? part, yeah. So in part one, he's talking about how to, you know, how to get, how to break away from the standard jazz swing ride pattern and not have it sound completely random and ridiculous. So he goes through a very clear step. The first thing you do is you, you replace one of the skip notes with just a quarter note. Okay. So that's the first thing. So he's playing ding, ding, a ding, ding, a ding, ding, a ding as your standard ostinato. Yep. Every once in a while, just leave out one of those skip notes. So ding, ding, a ding, ding, a ding, 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 a ding, 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 a ding, ding, a ding, 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 that type of stuff. Sure. So that's the first step, and he's all of a sudden you're getting into the more Tony Williams type ride cymbal playing. Second step is to add ties to the skip note. So now, oh, okay. so now you're doing ding, ding, a ding, ding, a ding, ding, a ding, da da, ding, a ding, da da, ding, a ding, ding, a ding, da da, da da, da da, ding, a ding, ding, a ding. That type of stuff. Wow. Yeah, man. That's lesson number two. Lesson number three is to reverse the pattern every once in a while. So the swing, the, so the swing ride goes on beats one and three rather than two and four. And so then ding, you, ding, 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 ding. Yeah, but then and you also surround that with quarter notes, so you're not getting like a full-on shuffle thing happening. Got it. So ding, 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 that type of stuff. Phew, losing my breath, bro. You're gonna be everybody's new ringtone. Ding, 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 ding. I think all of that is in the first two clips. Okay. Wow, that's enough to work on for the next ten years. Yeah, you could you if you really practice those simple things, your jazz approach will sound way more realistic. 
It's it's I mean up to there we're getting into that's like Jack DeJohnette, that's Elvin Jones, that's Bill Stewart, that's Brian Blade, that's Ian Froman, that's you know everybody. That's the language that they use on the ride symbol. So it's never just complete randomness. It's always relating back to that swing pattern. So highly recommend those. Sure. And then later in the later clips, he talks about um, how to balance yourself so you sound more authentic, which essentially just means your ride symbol is the lead voice at all times. So everything has to come in underneath the ride symbol unless you intentionally do something louder. And it's really, I mean, it's wow. once you get into that, then all of a sudden you realize that the bass drum and snare drum are always in support of the ride symbol. They should never be louder. The crash symbol, you can't go from the, the ride symbol to the crash symbol using the same stroke velocity and expect oh, wow. them to be balanced because the crash is always going to be louder. So you got to adjust all that. So, I mean, it's a gold mine of jazz drumming that I think everyone should check out, especially if you're not, if you're not really into jazz and you, but you kind of want to understand it. He distills it down. There's no mystery. Wow, it's that's really right cool, man. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to definitely check that out. That's awesome, man. And in the last one, he talks about some comping stuff, like real basic comping approaches. So Ian Froman, Contemporary Jazz Drumming, produced by Vic Firth. I think if you just search Ian Froman, Vic Firth Lessons, you'll, okay. you'll find. There's five of them. Awesome. Well, my pick of the week this time is the Steve Jobs biography by Walter Isaacson. And it's not... It's not. I don't know if it's the book as much as much as it's the lessons that you can get out of Steve's life. And you know, I've always had people in my life that I've really looked up to and idolized. But I always have to find the things in their world that I want to delete, the things that I want to move to the recycle bin. You know, and obviously Steve's way of treating people that he worked with, I would like to move to the recycle bin. But his vision for the future, um, definitely, I would like to keep. And being able to predict where things are going rather than just trying to keep up where things are is something that I'm trying to assimilate into my world and make sure that I'm always on top of that stuff. And But I'm not recommending it for that reason. I'm recommending it actually more for the author. Walter Isaacson, if you guys don't know, chairman of C- CNN, um, and he's the managing editor of Time Magazine. So this guy isn't just some random dude trying to write a book and Steve Jobs is the one that that actually approached him so he didn't approach Steve to do the biography Steve came to him because Walter Isaacson had done a a really intense biography on Albert Einstein and Steve loved that book and Steve knew he was dying and wanted uh, Walter to be the one to write his biography and said I will give you full access to all of the bad all of I'll just give you the truth print whatever you want and so if you haven't read the book yet, I've read it twice now, and each time I read it or each passage I go over, I learn something new about, you know, it's it's a great thing because everything he does that's bad is just as great of a lesson as everything that he does that's great. So every time he cusses somebody out for bringing a new idea to the table, that's a great lesson in what not to do. And you have to figure out, well, how would you have approached that situation different? If you were Steve Jobs in that situation, what would you have done that would have still gained the same result? Because there's no arguing with with the fact that Steve got great results from his team, but he crushed a lot of lives in the process. And I think there's a balance in there somewhere to be able to have people around you, push them for their best and things that they never even thought they could achieve without crushing their spirits. Uh, but like I said, once again, I'm really on the second time through the book, I'm really reading it, thinking of it more from Walter Isaacson's perspective of trying to 
you know, get the full story on somebody. And I think if you if you like biographies, uh, it's really worth reading. And then definitely check out the one that he did on Albert Einstein as well. So uh, and really quick, guys, please be careful when you buy the Steve Jobs biography from Kindle or from iTunes. I totally bought it in Italian. (laughs) (laughs) I did not. I did not read the fine print, and then I was on the plane the first time I was going to read it, and none of the words were in English, and there was no Wi-Fi to download the real version, and I had to wait for my 11-hour flight to be done until I could actually buy the right version. So make sure you buy the version in English, if you speak English. I got to get that, because that's a topic that I find totally fascinating, the idea of can you be innovative without being an extreme personality? I think in, in music, like one of my favorite artists right now is Sia. And it, yeah. you know, and she's she, when she's on the microphone and when she's in the studio. I mean, she's able to just emote so much raw emotion. But then you come to find out that she's bipolar. So it's like, yep. can you be a perfectly balanced, settled person and be really innovative at the same time? I one thing that I do know from you know my obsession with Steve Jobs, uh, obviously Elon Musk. I mean, that's probably the the one that I obsess over as much as anybody right now. And then in the past, Michael Jordan is the key to all of their success is passion. There's no getting around it. Um, None of them were slightly passionate. They were obsessively passionate. But I think one thing people would love to find out is what is driving that passion? Because for Steve, it it wasn't money. He had no furniture in his house. Um, You know, he didn't have Lamborghinis. He had a Mercedes. Um, But he was an extremist on all levels. You know, he was he would go on a diet for two weeks straight of just apples, believing that somehow it would cure (laughs) body odor. And it didn't. And when he worked at Atari, they actually had to move him to the midnight to 7 a.m. shift so that he didn't have to work around any humans because humans couldn't be around his odor. Um, so yeah, when he worked at Atari, they wouldn't let him work with other people because he smelled so bad, but he was like, no, I don't smell at all. I'm eating apples only. And they were like, dude, we're just telling you, you smell like buttered ass. Like you smell horrible. So, so yeah, but I mean, and you know, one thing that when you read about somebody as extreme as Steve jobs is you will find similarities in your life where you're like, wow, I do that all the time. And this author is painting that as a very negative thing. Maybe I need to reflect a little bit. You know, yeah. one thing that Steve had was what they called, or he called his, the people around him called the reality distortion field, which is he would tell himself something that wasn't true whatsoever, but he would make it true in his world. And it just was, and he would will it into being no matter what it was. Um, and it could be something as dark as the, you know, the moments in his life where he just denied that he had a daughter, even though there was DNA proof that he did. And he just, he created the truth that he doesn't have a daughter. That's it. But then there'd be other things that were very, very great for him. Like we cannot get this computer out. We cannot ship the iMac by the deadline. And he's like, I don't, I I don't even hear you right now. This is happening. This, no, it's totally possible. And they're like, we're telling you it's not possible. And he would create a new reality and he would just lie to himself until it became into an existence. So how can we use that on the drums? Dude, I, I'm telling you, some of it kind of made its way to the London Drum Show. Like, yeah. you know, I just kind of created a new reality for who I was as a clinician, and it it kind of came into being. And I've never felt so so positive after leaving the stage. So, um, so anyways, it's definitely worth reading. But like I said, I'm reading it now, more focused on the writer Walt, Walter Isaacson than I am focused on Steve Jobs. So, wait, I'm definitely getting that tonight. 
Sweet. Well, I will. I will watch Ian Froman's video. Yeah, a little uh, bit videos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I guarantee the inspiration will be the same. I'll be practicing jazz all night long, which I, I definitely need. So, until next week, my friend. Happy twentieth. Yeah. That's right. See you around Christmas. All right, buddy. Later. <laughs>